welcome to the Bethel Free Baptist Church Weekly Sermons. The following podcast is from the Sword of the Spirit Bible Conference. This is the question and answer session of Sunday the 22nd of February 2015. Here's Brother Dave Kistler and Pastor Larry T. Curtis. Father, thank you so much for this afternoon. Thank you for the opportunity we've had to enjoy this time together, Lord. I thank you for every one of these men and women, Lord, and what a blessing they've been to my life already. And Father, I pray your consummate blessings upon them. I pray that this time would be profitable, that you would help Brother Larry and I to give answers that are both biblical and wise. And Father, I pray that it would be helpful, Lord, in the days ahead, that we all might be mutually strengthened as a result of our time together. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey guys, for those that uh, haven't uh, been here before, try to make it a light time, a fun time, and a serious time. Uh, we, we've got some questions that we're still trying to get to the bottom of. They've been trying to find out for 13 years who Brother Brian's barber is, but we still haven't figured it out. Uh, what kind of hairspray he uses. Uh, <clears throat> some of the more serious things that have come in on the questions, you know. <laughs> but... Uh, um, but yeah, I guess uh, we'll start out with the serious stuff. Uh, what hair products do you use to keep your hair unlike Brian? <laughs> That's for you, Gary. Okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah, okay. You ever heard of bedhead products? Do you know? That's the hair. I use that hairspray, but that's about it. <laughs> so, anyway, that'll, that'll keep your hair from. Uh, this is a toupee, by the way, guys. You're laughing. Why are you laughing? It's a, no. Yeah, it's right. No, it's not a toupee. Yeah, you pull, pull. <laughs> Somebody did ask me yesterday if you were a Marine like Brian because they were wondering why your hairstyle wasn't the same. <laughs> well, the, the, uh, the next one is, uh, <clears throat> we've had this one a few times. What's the most embarrassing thing that has happened while you have been preaching? For example, I can tell you, you know, Brother Brian's was when he was preaching with his fly open and uh, Veronica was telling him to shut it up. (laughs) (laughs) Zip it up and I'm not going to do it. (laughs) Um, Years ago, this was years ago, um, I was speaking to a group of teenagers and there was a pulpit um, very similar to that that looked like it was made out of oak wood, very heavy, and it was um, up on a platform about this high. And uh, everybody's sitting out here, and I was up that high. Well, I was telling this story. It was an illustration about this guy who ran at the pulpit, and he hit the pulpit, and it was light. And he hit it with such force that the pulpit fell over the front of the platform, and he fell, and, you know, his hands hit the floor and all. And I was, no kidding, guys, as I'm telling that, I'm dramatizing it. I hit the pulpit that was in front of me, and it looked like it was heavy, and it wasn't. And it literally went over. And I went all the way, came right off the platform, and my feet stayed up this way, and my hands are down on the floor like this. And when I looked up, all of the young people were going, they thought I planned it that way, and I didn't. And I shouldn't have told them, but I said, guys, I'm sorry, that was a mistake. That wasn't supposed to happen. And they went into hysterics laughing. It was the funniest thing. Um, I've had a few others, but I think that was the worst. have shared mine with the ones that were here, and mine's so embarrassing that it's hard to share it. It's hard to even tell it without it being embarrassing. But before I do that, <laughs> um, I remembered one just as Brother Dave was because some of you know that both of our dads were pastors, and they pastored in the same town, and they knew each other. And early in my ministry, when I was uh, on deputation work and, and, and whatnot, Dave's dad asked me to come and preach at a pastor's fellowship in his church. And... Uh, and this was a pastor's fellowship that had uh, men from all different kind of backgrounds. I mean, some were really fiery preachers and some were very dignified and, and all this different thing. And so my pastor got a good one on his dad when he went up and said, you got Brother Larry preaching today, right? He said, he said you know Brother Larry jumps the pews, don't you? <laughs> and, and, of course, uh, it was priceless to see uh, the, the face on, uh, on Dave's dad when he thought that uh, I was going to start climbing the pews in his, in his church while I was preaching in front of some of these dignified pastors, but uh, I didn't. So, anyway, um, the most embarrassing situation was very, I was a very young preacher. Uh, I'd been preaching for just a few years, and uh, our church was without a pastor, 
and uh, I was doing filling the pulpit most of the time when I wasn't preaching elsewhere uh, while looking for a pastor. Well, our church also had a a radio program that was put on the uh, uh, on the local Christian stations every every Sunday afternoon, and so it was the the live recording of our morning service that was rushed to the radio station. Back in those days, we didn't transfer, you know, like we do now. You recorded it on a tape, and you rushed the tape, the tape to the uh, to the radio station. And uh, so after the morning service, uh, they were getting ready to do the tape, and one of the deacons came back to the back of the recording booth and said, uh, I don't think I would take that tape to the radio station. And uh, he went on to explain why. And I thought he was pulling my leg. It was just so crazy. I thought he was pulling my leg. He said, let's go back and listen to it. He went back and played me what I had said. And uh, really, sorry, I'm not meaning to be uncouth, but I did it from the pulpit, so I may as well own up to it. But uh, I I was really going, I was passionate in my preaching, and we were talking about uh, uh, the church not being an organization like any other worldly organization or anything like that. And and man, I got in out of passion. I said, the church is a living But instead of saying organism, which I meant to say, uh, (laughs) that was embarrassing. (laughs) And I didn't even know I'd done it at the time. But but then to look back, whoa, I said that. (laughs) But I agreed. We better not take that to the radio station. So that was probably my most embarrassing moment (laughs) in the pulpit. That's what I just did. What, why does Scripture emphasize the right hand of God? Does God ever use his left hand? Is it biblical that his left hand is his judgment hand and the use of his left hand is yet to come? Well, I don't know about the last part, about the use of his left hand yet to come. I don't even know the middle one, does God ever use his left hand, but I always assumed he emphasize the right hand because all righteous people are right-handed. Well, actually, the, the right hand, there's a, there's, there's a legal, what legal, there's a um, authoritative illustration that's being given there. A person generally, the right hand was the place of authority. And um, so I think there's a, there's a tie-in there when it talks about us, you know, being seated at God's right hand and and does Jesus being seated at the right hand of the Father? I think there's some imagery there to you know God's authority and Jesus being given a place of prominence at the right hand of the Father and so on. I think all of that's tied in. As far as um, the left, and I don't know that there's anything um, imagery there necessarily, except you know the Scripture does talk about those that uh, on the left are cast out into outer darkness and so on. So there's something there. But the right hand was a position of favor in a position of authority. And so that's why I think the Scripture refers to that. Okay. okay. Uh, no specific order here. Just the, uh, the next one says, Do people in heaven see what goes on in earth after they die? And second, he says there will be no sorrow in heaven, but if they could see us, surely there would be. Um, well, just a couple of things. What were the days looking at what he's, whatever he's looking up there? Um, I guess it's a speculation that a lot of people wondered for a lot of years in, in the passage about being encompassed about so, about so great a, of a cloud of witnesses. Some people think that is and all of this. Uh, I don't really know exactly what it's like to be there spiritually. I do know that, uh, uh, that certainly the part about sorrow, I think that would be very soft, but there will be no sorrow. But I believe God has sorrow. The Bible speaks about godly sorrow. I believe that it breaks God's heart, some of the things that he sees. Uh, and I believe that if you look into the, uh, into the book of Revelation, that uh, there is a day coming when this, uh, the curse is finished and we've all taken our place in the, uh, in the new heaven. But uh, it's Revelation chapter 20 that finishes with whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. I don't think anybody could see that and not have sorrow. Um, but then the next verse goes on to tell us after that, and I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. 
Now John saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with me. He will dwell with me, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with me and be their God, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. Uh, I believe that with all my heart. Uh, but even the format that the Bible puts it in, uh, this is after this sin-cursed world has been judged. It's after all, all the lost have been cast into hell. It's after the new heaven and the new earth have come without all of that. And there will be no more sorrow, no more pain. Now, I don't believe that uh, a Christian, that once you leave this life, I don't believe that, that you're going to have pain in heaven from a physical sense or anything like that. Uh, but I, I wouldn't go as far as to say that there is no sorrow in heaven now um, because uh, I believe that the day is coming once all this sin and the sin-cursed world and the sinners are all dealt with, that there will be a day when there will be no more. But. Boy, he answered that very, very well. Let me just follow up. The passage he talked about in Hebrews, Hebrews 12, wherefore seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. Uh, the scripture is replete with um, athletic analogies. In fact, the Apostle Paul uses athletic terminology uh, repeatedly throughout his writings. In fact, that leads me to believe he was a he was not only a fan of some of the athletic events, he probably attended some of them. But um, whether you believe Paul wrote Hebrews or not, that is, that is a running analogy to spectators in, a, in, a, in an arena, watching those that are down on the field or the playing surface of the track participating in an athletic contest. And so that has led many to believe, and I'm one of them. I believe that to whatever degree, to what degree, I don't know, but there is some degree that those that have gone to heaven ahead of us can observe some of what's going on down here. And it's almost like, the scripture is in, indicating in Hebrews 12, they're cheering us on, you know, as we take our stand for Christ and we walk with him, especially the days that we're living in as we get closer to the Lord's return. So I think that is a, I think there's a, an element of that, that that's going on. So I do believe that those in heaven can see some of what goes on down here, how much, I'm not sure. But I would say this, um, what Brother Larry said about Revelation 21, about God wiping away the former things. In other words, they're, when God wipes away the tears and he wipes away the sorrow, that mean, means just by presupposition there has been tears and there has been sorrow. And you've got to understand what's been happening on the earth that is wiped away in Revelation 21 is a lot of judgment. And there are those in heaven, evidently, that have been able to watch some of what's going on on the earth. And so God just does away with all of that and takes away the sorrow, the tears, and all of that is a thing of the past. But that happens... You know, at the end, that's not talking about right now. So really, that was a good question. Excellent question. I'm not sure who asked it, but great. And again, you get in a lot of things. I know that to some of you come from different backgrounds and different churches, and, and uh, it's never been our purpose to, uh, to undermine teaching that you have because it's different from, uh, from us. I think it was, uh, I think it was one, of the, one of the messages the, uh, yeah, this morning that Brother Dave talked about some things we're willing to die for. And uh, I'm... I'm so slow that I make my people slow that I've, I've been going for about three, year now, three years now in a series contending for the faith and just what the fundamentals of that faith are that we are to contend for. And in doing that in many of those things, explaining what is the fundamental and the difference in that is something that's important to us as an individual or even to a church to be in unity. Uh, there are things that our church that we as a local church have to agree on that doesn't mean that because the church down the street does it different or believes it different that they're all heretics and we're the only ones that's right. You know, the thing is there are different levels, but we need to understand that there are things that we cannot disagree on. And, uh, and the thing is is that uh, I don't think that anybody's going to be a part of this meeting for long and disagree on the fundamentals of the faith that we all hold so precious. Um, and, uh, but, uh, but there are things there. And, of course, one of the things, that, the reason I said that is because, Brother, uh, Dave and I would certainly both come from a type of teaching that believes very much not only just in a visible return of the Lord Jesus Christ, but that he's coming prior to the seven years of tribulation to rapture the church from this earth, that during that seven years of tribulation, that we as believers will be in heaven, 
Uh, and we'll be going through two things there, and that's the, uh, the marriage supper of the Lamb, uh, where only we as Christians not being judged for our eternity, but being judged on the things that we've done with our Christian life and the rewards being given out, and the marriage supper of the Lamb, uh, becoming the bride of Jesus Christ, being presented as that spotless bride, and then returning with him to the earth seven years later in what I believe is the second stage of his second coming to the earth uh, when he comes back, and it's at that time uh, that he will. Uh, of course, set up his kingdom and literally reign on this earth for 1,000 years. Uh, at the end of that, there will be another battle. And uh, he will sit upon the great white throne of judgment and all the lost. Again, not it's not a question of whether they're going to go to this place or that. The only people being judged at the great white throne of judgment are those that are unbelievers. Uh, and it's after all of that. There's a lot of things, and this is where a lot of the false teachers, you know, it's like, you know, Jehovah's Witnesses, we all know that they don't, they don't believe in heaven. They believe in a, in, a, in, a, in a perfect place here on earth. Well, there's going to be a new earth. There's going to be a new heaven. We don't even understand all of that, but we know God's going to make all things new. Uh, we know that that new Jerusalem's coming down out of heaven to, uh, to, to here. Um, but we know it's going to be glorious because we're going to be with him. There will be no more sin. Uh, and we don't know how all the pieces of that, but we believe that literally uh, in all those things. And, of course, that's why I, I believe just as literally that right there, uh, just after all that the sin has been judged and the new Jerusalem has come down, that God literally will wipe away the tears and take all the sorrow that, uh, that has, has been there. It's a very literal thing. This is a hard question. <laughs> it says, if God is so good, why is my life right now so miserable? The more grace I pour out to people is the more unpleasantness I receive. And, uh, and of course, I've said several ways and a number of times that's, that's part of what this weekend is about, that we can help each other. It's a tough world we live in. It's not always fair. And you know, one thing that, you know, there's a lot of things go through our mind. We're hearing these sermons as Brother Dave was preaching this morning and we were thinking about these that have literally given their life's blood for the faith that we hold so dear. And sometimes, I don't mean this nasty, guys, sometimes we think we're having it so hard. Um, we know that life is tough. We know it's hard, and we're not making light of that. And sometimes, even us preachers in the flesh feel like, you know, what's the use, you know, uh, when everything seems to be going wrong and nothing seems to be working. And but we live in a sin-cursed world. Um, and it's very real, the battle that we are involved in. Um, I don't think we'll ever know why we go through some of the things that we go through. Some we do. I've been through some pretty bad things that afterward I can look back and say, wow, I know why God let me go through that, why he allowed that in my life. I can see um, those that have been here before, you've probably heard before because uh, certainly all those at Bethel, my, my favorite passage in all the Bible is Romans chapter 8. And I've told them they can do whatever else they want to at my funeral. I want that chapter read in its entirety. And, of course, one of the verses that we often quote out of there is, is verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Uh, folks, <laughs> all things. Have you ever stop and think about that? All things. Whatever bad that you're going through, see, that all things is everything. That's the good things, the bad things, the things you get right, the things you get wrong. Everything works together for good. Yes, we bring a lot of bad things upon ourselves because we do some pretty stupid things sometimes. And God allows us to suffer the consequences of those things. We've even heard in the preaching. Sometimes we have to suffer the consequences of sin on and on in our bodies. Even though God's forgiven us for the sin that we committed, the consequences are still there. You murder somebody, they don't come back to life because you get forgiveness for the sin. There are many consequences. There are scars in my life, things that I still have to live with from poor choices that I made. But I sure wish I could make that choice again and do it differently. But not because God wanted me to do it. I'll share something that, man, I preach and I teach to our young people the importance, the importance of your friendships, the importance of the relationships you're allowed to develop, the importance of relationships, 
particularly with the opposite sex and how you allow those to develop. And, you know, I, I mean, I got everything wrong when it came to that. I was as backslidden as backslidden could be when I met my wife. She was lost. I was a backslidden Christian. I shouldn't even have been going out with her. I shouldn't even have been there in the first place. God didn't design that. God didn't want that sin in my life. But God's grace was so great that even though, man, I was blowing it all, he still brought the best thing in my life out of it, my wife and my kids in this life. Not because I got it right, but in spite of me getting it wrong. I know with all my heart that it was God's will for her to be my wife. I know with all my heart, on our honeymoon she got saved. And I recommitted my life to the Lord. And our whole life has been a life living together with Christ at the center of our home, thank God. But I was blowing it bad. It was in spite of it. That doesn't mean we should just go out and do things wrong and what's going to be is going to be. That's got a lot of people in trouble with their theology. I mean, we got a great God that is so gracious. And whoever whoever this is, I don't I don't know who did what is hurting, but everybody hurts sometimes. But you know, the thing is is that if it wasn't for your good, God wouldn't allow it. We have to we have to sometimes ask ourselves, I still <laughs> I still try to figure out sometimes why that there's certain things in my life that I've had to go through, that I go through, that I deal with. But in the end, you see, I go right, the, the verses that follow that in Romans chapter uh, chapter 8 talk about the fact, and, 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 and I'd just like to, uh, to read those for you because I have, to, I have to be careful even when I preach on these verses because <clears throat> that pulpit better be tied down, amen? Uh, it's just, it's just... It's awesome when we stop and, and, and think about God and what he's doing for us because he goes on to say, for whom he did foreknow. And again, we're not going to get into a lot of theology here. That, that, that's not just a, a knowledge of, of knowing about something. That's the same kind of foreknow of when Adam knew Eve in the Garden of Eden God knew us in the relationship that we're already in with him, that intimate relationship that we have with him when Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior. For whom God did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son. Wow. God's got a plan in place that I am being made into the image of Jesus Christ himself. That's God's plan for my life. But then he, he doesn't just stop there about this, this plan that he had in the, that he might be, that Jesus Christ might be the firstborn among many brethren. Listen, moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. And every one of those is past tense. He called, he justified, he glorified. I'm already glorified. I'm already like Jesus Christ in God's eyes because he only sees me in Jesus Christ. I don't understand that. But boy, it gets you excited when you really start grasping what he's saying to us. This is God's plan. And it can't go wrong. It's impossible for it to go wrong. In God's eyes, that's why he can speak of things that were as though they were. <laughs> Even though that they're not yet. God speak of them as if they were. And, of course, he says a lot of good things there, but then I would remind you that he asked a question in verse 35, who then shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword. As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, and just in case I left anything else, no other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Uh, I could preach the rest of my life off of that passage and never, ever, ever be able to explain all that God's given us right there in those few verses. So I don't know who you are. Your faith needs to be in him, not in your circumstances, not in what you understand and what you don't understand. If you believe that God loved you and saved you, then believe his promises and stand upon them. And know God's got a reason, and something good will come from it. 
And I don't know. I wish I could tell you why life is so tough sometimes. But I do know this. We've got to keep loving each other and encouraging each other. One simple verse that so many times we use just for church attendance, but, you know, he says, Forsake not the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. You know, we, we need each other. We exhort, we encourage, we build up, we lift each other up. Because, man, you might be having a bad day today, and I might be having a good one, but it might be me in the valley tomorrow that you're helping me up. And, uh, and again, that's part of what all this is about. You guys are such an encouragement to me. So whoever you are, I love you, and I'm going to be praying for you. And I wish I could tell you why you're going through what you're going through right now. But God's grace is sufficient. And there's a reason for it, whether we know it or not. Wow, great answer. Let me just encourage you about this as well. What Brother Larry said about making bad decisions and God bringing something good out of it. Scripture says God makes beauty out of our ashes. So when we do something dumb, and trust me, this guy here has done a lot of dumb things, the Lord is an expert at taking what we've done that was wrong. And as I heard our former pastor, he used to say it this way, he's so good at uh, taking our ashes and making beauty out of them, that long-term it'll look almost like God designed it the way that we did it, even though what we did was not right. And that's a classic example is Brother Larry and his dear wife. There's not a couple that I love any more and respect any more than them. Uh, and God's done a wonderful thing. Let me just encourage you about something. If you're going through something and you're questioning, Lord, what in the world is going on and why is this happening? We talked about Joseph the other night. If, if you read Genesis chapter number 37, there's seemingly an incidental statement made that's not coincidental or incidental at all. It says that Joseph was 17 years old. Genesis 37, Joseph being 17 years old, and then it starts telling his life story. Why does it mention he's 17? Well, you can do the math all through his life. Remember, his brothers hated him because he was told them the dreams. They sold him into slavery in Egypt. Potiphar bought him. Um, Potiphar's wife tempted him. He resisted that temptation. Potiphar puts him in jail. By the way, Potiphar could have killed him if he believed his wife's accusation because she said he's the one that propositioned me at the end of Genesis 39. That wasn't true. He ends up in jail, and all the Bible says is this, and he was there in the prison. That is the phrase from Genesis 39. If you study the chronology of Joseph's life, he was in the prison 10 years. So he was 17 He's sold into slavery in Egypt. He does right. Potiphar's wife lies, says he propositioned me when she was the one propositioned him. He ends up in jail. He's there 10 years for something he did not do. If you'll remember, Butler and Baker show up in prison. They had offended Pharaoh. So Pharaoh incarcerates both of them. One night, those two guys have a dream. Joseph interprets their dream. He tells the butler, you're going to get out of prison in three days. He tells the baker, you're going to be hung in three days. And both things happen. As the butler is exiting the prison, Joseph says, think on me when it shall be well with thee. Put in a good word for me to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison. You know what happens? That butler forgets all about him. If you read Genesis 41, the Bible says at the end of two full years, Pharaoh dreamed and Pharaoh asks his court, I've dreamed this dream, can't figure out what it is. The butler says, I remember my faults this day. I was in jail a couple of years ago. You put me there. There was this Hebrew servant there who interpreted my dream. Now let's do the math. It was two years he had been forgotten. So Joseph was 17 when it started. He's in jail 10 years. He's 27. Butler and Baker show up. They're there about a year. That's 28. Butler gets out, forgets about him for two years. That's 30. Do you understand? Joseph is 30 years old. He has been done wrong and spent time in jail for the majority of his youth for something he didn't do. Right? He interprets Pharaoh's dream. Pharaoh elevates him to second in command. Do you remember? Remember how the prosperous years start? And Joseph's tucking away a part of the prosperity, and then very quickly the seven famine years come, and Joseph is taking out of the storehouse and basically feeding the world. His brothers show up, and when Joseph reveals himself to his brothers, they get scared out of their mind that Joseph's going to retaliate because they sold him into slavery. He says, don't be angry. What you meant for evil, God meant it for good. So what I'm trying to say is this. I don't know what you're going through right now. You 
obviously it's not a pleasant thing or the question wouldn't have been worded the way it was worded. I'm thankful that you did ask the question, but please understand this. You may not understand everything God's trying to do, but he's trying to bring about something phenomenally good in your life. Just wait patiently for him and he'll bring all that to pass. Uh, I would cite one other example, and that's Job. Job loved God with all of his heart. Bad things happened to Job. Job's friends turned their back on him. The better part of the entirety of the book of Job is Job's friends accusing him. Why don't you listen to a verse? This is an amazing thing. Genesis 42, verse 10. After all of that happened, the Bible says, And the Lord turned the captivity of Job. When did God do that? When he prayed for his friends. The friends that were criticizing him saying, Job, you had to do something wrong to be getting all of this, all this bad stuff, you know, the boils and the loss of your children and all of your economy, the, all of your finances wiped out. Got to be something you did. No, it was a major test from the Lord and the Lord turned all of it when Job prayed for his friends. And the latter part of verse 10 says, and the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. So the end of Job's life was an amazing thing. So whatever it is you're going through, hang in there. Understand God knows everything you're going through. He's trying to bring about something good in your life. Now, let me be very personal, okay? Sometimes I think maybe you guys look at maybe Brother Curtis and myself and you think, man, you guys have never had a difficult thing in your life. In fact, I've had people tell me that, preacher, you've, you've lived a very comfortable life. You've never had any difficulty. And because I don't talk about it a lot, that's what people think. I do know what it is to go through some difficulty, Okay. We have three children here on earth. We have one in heaven. Now, I'm not going to all the details, but I know what it's like to have the loss of a child. I know the agony of that. I know the heartache of that. I know the pain of all that. I know what it's like to lose everything you've got financially and be down literally, guys. All I had in the bank was $100. In the early days of our evangelistic ministry, something happened that was very difficult. We had $100 to our name. I didn't know how we were going to make it, but God came through. So I'm here to tell you this. I, I do understand heartache and difficulty, not minimizing what you're going through at all. But I want you to know God loves you, and he's going to make something good out of all of it, which is exactly what he did with Job, certainly what he'd done in my life, and he certainly did that with Joseph as well. Amen. <clears throat> Next one says, Jesus' miracles and ministry are all throughout the Bible, yet we know little about his life. Surely as the Savior of humankind, as Christians, we should know more than just a few moments of his life. From birth till 12 and then nothing for 18 years. After all, we are trying to model our life after him. Again, I, I don't. I don't mean this to uh, to sound sh uh, short. To the question, because obviously it's important to you. Surely, as the savior of humankind, as Christian, we should know more than just to know. We shouldn't know more than what God's told us. Okay, um, you know, for us to decide that God hasn't told us something that we need to to know. Uh, is is as I think you know trying to second guess God, which is which is uh, not something we ought to do. Uh, and yes, I guess a lot of people, out of curiosity, wonder well what. But we know the important things. You see, his ministry started at 30 years of age. We know that Jesus Christ loved you enough to go to the cross and die for you. We know that the example that he gave to us was one of love and grace toward all those that he was in touch with, to serve, to minister to, um, and. The truth is, is that if we could just try to master the three and a half years of his life before he went to the cross, then that's more than a lifetime for us. Um, why did not God not choose to reveal to us the things of Jesus between 12 years old and uh, 30 years old? It said 18 years here, something what it said. Um, you know, we don't, we don't know all the reasons why God didn't, but... Uh, we already know more about him than we can ever grasp and understand. Um, and we know everything that we need to know about him to master our lives after him. Um, the Bible doesn't tell us everything about anybody, but we know more about Jesus. I believe that all of the Bible points to him 
that is the center of everything that God has, has given to us and uh, um, and why God didn't tell us more about those years. Well, those years aren't while he was doing what he came to do, which was preparing for us to die upon that cross to give himself for us. Uh, that's what we need to know about Jesus Christ above, above everything else. And, and on any of these guys, please understand, some, some of these things we could have week-long meetings on, uh, just trying to, uh, to cover the details of them. And so, you know, if, if, if the answer that we give, if, if, if there's more, if there's something that we've missed, if there's something that's not what you're really getting to, please, please see us. We don't bite. Uh, you know, we want to, uh, to be, we don't even know all the answers, but we just, we just want to want to help you. <clears throat> Thou shalt not murder is a commandment from God. So why does God command men to kill? Uh, well, there's, um, I'm going to have to make some assumptions in the question, you know, are you applying uh, the killing, you know, in the, in, the, um, in the context of war? Or is it, uh, you know, in the context of passages in the Old Testament for example, where the Lord told um, Israel to go smite Amalek utterly. And um, obviously, killing within the context of war is allowed in the scriptures. Um, I think you hit on the, the major part of it in your question. Thou shalt not kill as far as the commandment, thou shalt not kill, literally means thou shalt do no murder. It's talking about a cold-blooded murder. Thou shalt not do that is what it's saying. So obviously, killing in the context of war, when God brings judgment on people that have uh, disregarded him and disregarded his word, and in the Old Testament uses his nation Israel to go and to pronounce a judgment on them by wiping them out, obviously that's not um, part of what thou shalt not kill is referring to it. Literally means cold-blooded murder is not supposed to take place. So um, anyway, I, I'll say that much and then, yeah. You're talking about with animals? Okay, yeah, the passage there in the Ten Commandments has to do with human relationships, not animal relationships, yeah. Um, I am an animal lover. Trust me, I am. I've got pictures on my phone. My, my daughter, I'll tell you this, my oldest daughter has a 140-pound Great Pyrenees dog. I don't know if you've ever seen. The, he looks like a polar bear. I mean, he is massive. And um, when we travel in the States and he goes with us, uh, we have a motorhome that we travel in. He'll sleep to my right as I'm driving. I mean, he's my buddy. And when I pull into refuel, he stands up, and people have looked through the windshield of that bus, and then they realize what they're looking like. I go, what is that? Uh, Brother Larry has met this dog. I mean, he's awesome. He's a rescue, by the way, but he's incredible. I love animals, and I have, um, I've never been one that just believes anybody ought to indiscriminately, just for their sheer pleasure, shoot animals. The Scripture talks about this, you know, that a righteous man regards the life of his beast. In other words, a man who's right and wants to walk with God is going to have a heart of compassion even toward an animal. I believe there's a principle there. But the, the commandment, thou shalt not kill, was in human relationships, not, not animals. But I will say this. I think there's something really, really wrong with someone who can torture an animal, mistreat an animal, and that not bother them. There's something wrong with that individual. Really, really wrong. Great question. Yeah, and just a reminder to keep in mind sometimes the hard force is that uh, it's the wages of sin that is death. Who took the first life? God took the first life in the Garden of Eden. He took the life of an animal in the Garden of Eden. But it was a consequence of man's sin. All death is, is a cause of sin. God, God didn't create life for it to die. It's because of sin that death entered in. When sin entered in, death entered with it. And so keep in mind that, you know, it's not God's desire for anything to die. It's part of the curse of sin. Everything dies unless it's regenerated in Jesus Christ. Amen. So keep that in mind. <clears throat> okay. Now these next two, I'm going to be a little bit evasive. But the only reason is this. I've already stated that... Uh, Again, our purpose here is not to be divisive. I know that we have young people that come from all kind of backgrounds, and I know that uh, it's only the tough ones that are left on Sunday afternoon. <laughs> uh, a lot have had to go, uh, and a lot have gone. And these are some of those things that 
I'm not going to die for. I'm not going to become your enemy for. I'll gladly give you my opinion. But both of these are things that I've had to study out in great detail for myself, and we're not going to answer them. In a, and it would, I would probably do more harm than good in trying to give you a short answer. The first one, can women become pastors? I guess that's pastors, ministers, or general leaders of the church. If not, why can you give a scripture to why not? It's a tough question for a whole lot of reasons. And, and, and I would recommend this. The things, there's a reason why that there are some things that so many different churches disagree on. And that's because sometimes the answers aren't as black and white as, as we would like for them to be. They're just not clean cut. Now, my personal question, no, I do not believe that women can be pastors. Not because they can't do even a better job than I can. Not because they're less spiritual. Some of the most spiritual, godly people that I have known have been women. And not because some of them certainly would put me to shame as far as their ability of speaking. But preaching is not done because of what we know, because of who we are. It's not done because we're the most spiritual. As a matter of fact, I, I, I tell my people here, if they don't know it, I know it better than any of them. The thing that took, the only thing that took more of God's grace than it did to save me was to call me to preach. You see, when I get in that pulpit, it's not because I'm the most spiritual person in here. It's not because I'm the most manly. It's not because of what I know. It's not because of how I can do it. It is a God-called thing, and, and part of the problem is that it's a profession. Now, I'll give you a passage that I would simply say that, I mean, there are a couple of passages, and I guess that the the most common would be, of course, if you went to 1 Corinthians chapter, uh, well, 12, 13, 14, deal with actually both of these last two questions. Um, but, uh, but, of course, in that passage of Scripture there, it really speaks of women uh, keeping silent in the, in the churches. But in fairness, when you take it in all of its context, the, uh, the most relevant context there is... Uh, the problem they had of speaking in tongues and things that were going on in the uh, uh, in the church, um, but I would say the simplest one and the one to chew on that I could say that uh, you know I'd, I'd really have trouble uh, uh, getting around um, with any kind of an excuse is in First Timothy. And the Bible says very very clearly here. Of course, again, keep in context all that he's talking here about a godly life and, and, and prayer. Uh, I'll, I'll begin in verse 8. He says, I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. In like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broided hair or gold or pearls or costly array, but which becometh women professing godliness with good works. Let the women learn in silence with all subjection. But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. Why? That was your question, right? For Adam was first formed, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. Notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith and charity and holiness and sobriety. There's so many things there. See, man nor woman, neither one of them was more guilty of sin in the Garden of Eden. But, matter of fact, we just got through, we've been, we've been in our series on, on, on the fundamentals, we've been on the Genesis account for several months now, and part of this is what that uh, we've tried to look at in, in, in some detail. You know, Eve was deceived. And you can, you can commit sin by being totally, totally deceived. Adam knew exactly what he was doing, and he chose to disobey, to sin. They were both just as guilty of sin. Whether they did it through pure choice or whether they were completely deceived when they did it, it was still just as much sin, and they were both in it. But Eve was the one that committed it first. God didn't save for the women to keep silent and not to usurp authority and not to teach because she was a woman. God has an order of things. And a lot of it goes right back to the Garden of Eden. And he says, because 
Adam was first formed, and then Eve. Eve was made for Adam. She was made out of Adam. She was part of Adam, his rib. And, of course, she was the one that was deceived in the garden. Though the sin was just as great for both of them, she was deceived. God has an order of things. There are many, many, many passages you can go to. God has an order in the home. A man should take that authority. He is going to be held responsible before God whether he takes it or not. And in the church, I'll tell you what, there, a lot of the churches would not be here today were it not for the godly women that are there. And some of those godly women taking the roles that men ought to be taking. And, and the women are just as vital and just as important, not only to the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, but to the church as the man is. The preacher's not more important because he gets up there. He is being obedient to what God has called him to do. And each and every one of us have to be faithful and obedient to that. So, so again, <clears throat> there's a lot of reasons. And when you start looking at authority and submission and God's order of things and, and all of those things, but God's the one that gives you the answer. God's the one that says it here, and he says it clearly. And he tells us why that he's got that order in place. And he's got nothing. See, people today try to say, well, you're, you, know, you, you think the man's smarter, the man's stronger, the man's better, the man's more spiritual, the man's whatever. You're just, you know, chauvinistic pigs. <laughs> uh, no, I've got to take God's word. And, and that's what God says. And so, yes, we don't, women are just as important to us. Matter of fact, I'll tell you what, some of the women of this church right here are more supportive and more prayerful for their pastor than, than, than the vast majority of the men are. <laughs> um, and boy, do I thank God for them. And they could probably get up there and preach a better sermon than I could, but that's not God's order. He hasn't called them. He didn't call them. He, did, he didn't call me because I could do it better. He called me by his grace, and I need to be obedient in doing it. But I believe God has an order, and he's given us at least part of the reason there. Yeah, let me just echo what uh, Brother Larry said. This is something you're going to have to go into the scriptures and really wrestle with and come to a conclusion. And um, to be honest with you guys, I've come to the same conclusion that Brother Larry has. This, I think that verse there in in uh, 1 Timothy 2, verse number 13 is the key verse. Adam was formed first, then Eve. This is not a, an issue of ability. It's an issue of priority. Why did God choose to make Adam first? I don't know, but he did. Why did he choose to make Eve second? I don't know, but he did. Why does God say men ought to take the role of leadership when it comes to the pulpit? I don't know, but that's what God said. So... All I'm trying to do is obey what I believe the Lord says. Now, with that said, let me say this to you, and I'm, I hope you'll understand this in the spirit in which I say it. One of my dearest friends in North Carolina is a lady named Dr. Kathy Johnson. I personally, personally, um, don't, don't believe women should be pastors. She is a pastor of a church. Okay, I'm just going to tell you what my wife said. Dr. Kathy has been with my wife and I to Washington, D.C. When we go and meet with legislators, she's one of the finest women I've ever met anywhere. She's one of the most spiritual women I've met anywhere. My wife said it this way, though I don't personally believe in women being pastors, she said, if I did believe in women being pastors, Kathy Johnson would be the church I would go to. And I know why she said that, because this lady is incredible. She loves the Lord. She, uh, she writes articles in the local paper. She just, she's just a great lady. She knows, she knows that she and I disagree. And you know what she's told me point blank? Brother Kistler, I love you and your wife. I believe in what God has called you to do. I believe in your ministry. You will never hear a word of complaint from me because we have this disagreement. And I said, Kathy, we love you. Uh, we just believe this differently. Uh, do I believe I'm right? I do. But we just disagree. And you know what? We've agreed to disagree and do so agreeably. And so that's where we've left it. So I would challenge you, delve into the scriptures, see what God has to say about this, and form your decision, not based on the human relationship, form it based on what God's word has to say. And one of the things I respect about Kathy is she's so spiritual that she says, look, this will never interfere with our friendship, and it hasn't, and it won't, just because we disagree on that. Um, I agree with Brother Larry. Where would the church be without the godly women? Okay. Again, the key passages are there in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. Um, 
The thing you can never get around is God gives specific instruction about the exercise of this gift. And um, I'll word it this way. Obviously, in Corinthians, they had they had a gift there given. It had gotten out of hand. There were people that were practicing a legitimate gift in a very inappropriate, I will even say unscriptural way. That's what necessitated the instruction that was given in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. Statements like this, you know, uh, let it be by two or at the most three. Or, you know, in other words, if you're in a service and someone's going to speak, you know, two or at the most three people speak, there needs to be an interpreter. There's other things that are given there as well. And um, what I'm saying is this, obviously a legitimate gift, a gift that had become abused, hence the necessity for scriptural instruction on the appropriate biblical use of that gift. If something meets the criteria of Scripture, personally, I can't deny it. What I am concerned about, though, is in our modern-day culture, there are things that claim to be scriptural which don't meet the scriptural criteria and are well outside what the Bible says. That's where I begin to get very, very concerned because my commitment, as ought to be the case with any Christian, needs to be to the Word of God and what God has to say. So... um, I'll say that and then hand it out and let Brother Larry finish up. Yeah, again, I, and whoever asked the question, first, the first thing I would, I would recommend is the same thing that I had to do. Uh, don't take a verse here and a verse there. Look at all that the Bible has to say about it. Number one, the word tongues is simply the word languages. Uh, now, may or may not whatever Bible that you use, but of course we use the King James, and in there you've got the word unknown in italics. A lot of times people talk about unknown tongues and whatnot. Well, that was simply because unknown from the sense, they didn't know what language that it was, but it doesn't mean that it wasn't known to anybody. The translators, under God's direction, put that there to help us to understand uh, that it was not a language. They couldn't say Greek or Hebrew or Chinese or whatever because uh, it was a language that was unknown to them. Several things to keep in mind. In the Old Testament, you go back to the prophet Joel and all this. Number one, tongues was a thing that was for judgment, but it was always talking about languages. It was talking about when they were being invaded by outsiders and those strange languages, those strange tongues that were going to be over them was a judgment upon them. Uh, On the day of Pentecost, uh, we find that... uh, uh, there's no question that there was a miraculous event that took place there uh, to do with languages. But I, I try to picture that into what most people uh, call to, to say a, a biblical thing of tongues today. Well, when I read in the book of Acts, this was something that, hang on, one guy was speaking. We know he was speaking in a normal language. But everybody was understanding in their own language. It wasn't somebody standing up speaking that suddenly somebody else had to tell you what he was saying. One guy was speaking in one language. And all these people from literally, he said, you know, Jews from every nation all over the world that were there, they heard in their own language, whatever country they come from, they understood. That doesn't really say, we come to Corinthians. Corinthians was one of the, I guess, most... uh, (laughs) capitalistic uh, uh, examples that we have in the New Testament. Uh, People were there from everywhere. It was a huge marketplace and all this taken on. Undoubtedly, the church had people, just like our church here at Bethel, we are a very international, multicultural. We have people from all over that attend here. The woman's there a lot of times. They come in just like we've had a lot of visitors lately that come from countries where that they do not speak very good English. And so, therefore, they struggle many times in the services understanding what the sermons are really all about. Um, there was a gift that was being exercised there. Even there, there is nothing, nothing anywhere in Scripture. And man, I was, I was trying to find the opposite many, many years ago when I was looking for it. There's nothing there that, that's talking, that, that shows us that it's a language that is out of this world somewhere. Uh, sometimes people go to Romans and they talk about uh, uh, these uh, uh, the Spirit praying for us with uh, sounds, groanings that could not be uttered. Well, if it can't be uttered, it's not coming out. That's something that, that that's within. You know, people try to make that into some heavenly language. I've heard them describe it in things. And well, you know, that's not what the Bible's saying. There, he's talking about the Spirit making groanings that we can't utter. 
we can't make a sound. We can't get it out of us. You know, the thing is, I'm, I'm just simply saying, I, I've searched it. I don't deny that there was a gift of tongues and that there was a purpose for it. I do believe this. I believe you can't study the scriptures without coming to recognize there was a real genuine need for some of the sign gifts. The gift of prophecy, I believe, is still very much in operation today, but not in the foretelling of things that God hasn't already told us, but in the foretelling of what God has. And all through scripture, prophets were used both ways. Sometimes they were foretelling of the future things that would come. They were a spokesman for God. I believe that same gift of prophecy today we would sometimes call great teachers, those that God uses to tell forth his word that he has already given to us. But there is no denying that God has used prophecy in the sense of foretelling things that are going to be. Um, the gift of languages, hey, I would have absolutely no problem. If somebody come up to me today and, 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 and they had met somebody on the street and, and, and they had opportunity to witness to this person and they didn't even speak the same language and God somehow allowed that person to understand, I'd be praising God with them. And I believe God could do that if he wanted to. It's not the way he usually works. The problem you find today, and, and I say this because, listen, I have family and dear friends. I tell people this. In the business world, when I was still working full-time, and trying to get through the ministry and training for the ministry and all of those things, I worked with an awful lot of people that were Christians who went to the same kind of church as I did, same brand, same tag, same name, and everything over that door. But, you know, some of my greatest spiritual experiences was with one of my very, very dear friends that went to an assembly of God, and they were a very charismatic church, and all the tongue speaking and all these things. But, you know, every Monday... When everybody else was doing their own thing, it was he and I that went out, and we went out. Instead of going out to lunch, we would go out to the park. We'd read our Bibles. We'd pray together. That was a day that we fasted together and prayed to the Lord. He wouldn't have felt comfortable coming to my church because there were things that he wanted to do that I, I would have felt. I, I've been to his church, and I would have felt uncomfortable being in that all the time because it's not what I felt comfortable with that I believe should be. He wasn't any less a Christian, and he certainly wasn't any less spiritual than I was, and he is one of my dearest friends, and I respect him and I love him, but we would never be able to be members of the same church and worship together and be in unity on these things because we have a disagreement. But that's where we've got to decide what things that we divide over, what are issues, because you can't be united as a local congregation and have all these divisions. Um, so... You know, it's a long study. For, I, I, I mean, I, I read and studied for years, and you can find people out there that have written books to prove whatever point of view that you want on just about any of these subjects. I just say, go to the Word of God. Let the Word of God truly speak to you and show you. And the sad thing is today is that it's because of the false use of that gift that there's so much chaos and disorder in a lot of churches and also that many very important things, because I've been to some of these places where you could pray to Mary if you want to, you could worship this idol if you wanted to, you could believe whatever you wanted to believe about this and that and the other, but as long as you spoke in tongues, you were all right. <laughs> you were all on the same wavelength. Those things become more important to some people than the true fundamentals of the faith do that we have to stand upon. Uh, so I think the devil's the one that wins when people get so sidetracked on a lot of side issues that we need to let God teach us from the Word of God. Uh, nobody, and listen to what I'm saying carefully, I believe what I believe strongly. Um, as a pastor, if you came into this church and during one of the services you chose to stand up and start speaking in tongues, I would have to ask you not to. Uh, that would be out of order for us and what we practice in this church. But I would try to do it graciously and lovingly, and I wouldn't think you were a second-rate Christian because of it, but I wouldn't allow you to come in and, and be divisive to our people by, by doing something like that. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't love a person any less because that they go to a church that, that does that and, 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 and more power to them. Um, nobody will either be in heaven or not be in heaven because of what they believe about speaking in tongues. Okay, That's not what makes you and I brothers and sisters in Christ. And I've said this before. You come here, and I appreciate you coming here this weekend, and... I'm not here to try to somehow undermine what 
you are being taught in your church. I'm, I'm telling you, if you go to a church that believes in it, I strongly disagree with it, and I would be gladly. We're not going to do it in a question and answer says, I'll be glad to take the Bible and sit down and tell you why I believe it, because I've had to search it out and come to my conclusion based upon what I genuinely believe is in God's Word, not what somebody's written about it. And I've come to those conclusions, and I would more, most gladly share them with you. But I'm not here to undermine, and that's not what this weekend is about. Um, and I do appreciate this, that uh, there's an awful lot of things out there that can be very confusing, and sometimes it's hard to find the truth. <laughs> it's hard to know what, you know, everybody says they're following the Bible, and everybody says they're doing it right, and, you know, and yet they're all doing it different. I understand. And, and the devil gets a lot of glory out of a lot of this because of those, uh, of those divisions. But, uh, yeah, um, it's, it's, a, it's a study that... Uh, they can take a lot of time, but again, I've come to the place that, uh, and and I and I would even say this. Some of my Christian friends might, you know, <clears throat> shot me. You know, there was a time in my young Christian life when uh, I was one of those that was down, you know, praying God. You know, you know, really, really, I want this and I want that. But more than anything, I was praying for God to give me a clear understanding. Let me please understand from Scripture, because man, I got friends telling me this, and I got friends telling me that. I want to know what the truth is, and. Uh, God will hold you accountable one day because of what he tells you in his word, not what I tell you or not what Brother Dave tells you. Um, and God will hold you accountable one day not because of what uh, you might practice in your church, but because of what God tells you is acceptable to, uh, to him. Amen. One last thing before we go, and this, this has to do with the, the breadth of what God's done uh, this week weekend. Uh, one of the books that changed my life was a book called uh, Tortured for His Faith by a gentleman named Harlan Popov. I don't know if any of you have ever read it, but I would strongly encourage you to get it. It's an amazing book. Harlan Popov was pastoring in Bulgaria when the, the basically the communist takeover of the country occurred. And in 1943, um, he issued a challenge to the pastors from a across the spectrum, all of them believe the Word of God, all of them adhere to what we commonly call the fundamentals of the faith, those non-negotiable things that we don't debate about, we all believe them, that have to do with the person and work of Christ. He challenged them to all begin praying together that God would send a revival to the country, etc., etc. None of that happened, and the communist takeover took place in 1948. Um, one of the first people to be arrested and incarcerated was Harlan Popov. In fact, he was arrested one early morning. His daughter was six years old when he was arrested. He said, I didn't see her again until 13 years, actually 14 years and two months later. And she had a little baby herself that was six years old when he saw his daughter again. The last time he'd seen her was when she was six. So he missed 14 years and two months of her life. What he said was so interesting is this. He said, after two years of being in prison, he said the communists started rounding up all the other pastors, pastors who we agreed together on the things that were vitally important. We may have disagreed on tongues, may have disagreed on, you know, should a woman be in the pastorate or not. He said, but all of those preachers began ending up in prison, in the same prison where Popov was. He said, um, we developed a little communication process where we would take our little metal drinking cup and after we'd drunk our ration of water for the day, we'd tap on the wall and they'd perfected a form of crude form of Morse code where they could pass messages to the other prisoners. And he said, I passed a message along to all the other uh, believers and pastors that were there. We're going to meet on the back of the, the lot when they let us have a little R&R &R today. Save a little bit of your ration of bread. Save a little bit of your ration of water because we're going to have the Lord's Supper. and We're going to use water and that little bit of bread. He said, when we all got out on the back of the property, everybody was so hungry, not one of them had saved any of the bread, they'd eaten all of it. They saved a little bit of their ration of water. And he said, what we had to do is we had to literally reach down in the ground and pick up little grains of dirt and let that represent the bread as we had the Lord's Supper. And he said, as we're doing that, I looked around. And he said, I noticed something. Some of these guys that outside prison would not work together. Now inside, we're being forced to get along together. And he said, the Lord taught me something. 
that in the body of Christ, we're going to have disagreements, many of which do not matter long term. Now, we believe what we believe strongly, but what really matters are those fundamental things that have to do with the person and work of Christ, how we get to heaven, how a person is saved, the deity of Christ, um, his, his bodily resurrection, all of these things. He said, that's where I realized I needed to put the emphasis, not on the things necessarily that separated us, but on the things that we would rally around that the Bible places as the most important. And so I would encourage about that. If you come from a different tradition that believes a little differently than Brother Larry and I do, it's okay. Uh, there's a lot that we agree about. And the bottom line is this, we need to serve the Lord together, especially the days we're entering into. And again, I'm speaking from an American context. I'm aware of a lot of things that are coming globally. Threats to the Christian faith globally that we're going to need each other in a big way. So uh, I would encourage you to think in those terms. Okay, guys. Well, that's all the questions that you've given us. If somebody's got something now. Again, this is not something we do because that, uh, well, especially not because I'm so smart. I know Davey is, but uh, um, it is so we can just relax and ask questions and talk about things. Some things, questions that arise during the sermons, during the weekend, some of the things we're already dealing with before we before we get here. Uh, but it's just a time for us to sit down and, and, and talk in a loving and gracious way about these things, and, uh, and we're just happy to uh, to do it with you. Mm -hmm.